actually, Marion and I have long, long links with Bristol. And uh, because Esther and Alex, uh, Esther, our daughter, and Alex's husband were here for 10 years, some of you will know them. And then we've been coming to the church on and off in the last few years. It just seems like 14, 15 years. I don't think I have ever, in those years, prior to the last fortnight, had a snow incident coming to <laughs> Bristol. I don't think I've ever sort of been here to visit the family and, oh, it's snowy, we'll have to hurry home and all that stuff we panic about. But I've had this happen twice in the last two weeks. What's the matter with you guys down here? It's me? Oh, right. (laughs) Right. Okay. We're going to look at quite a chunky bit of the New Testament, a great bit. Love it. But it's got quite a lot in it. So we're going to look at Ephesians 3 and verses 1 to 13. You you know, most of you, I would think, that you've been going through Ephesians here. And uh, I think this is slightly out of kilter because of the snow problem, but probably not massively, because I know you had a great baptismal service last week. So we're picking up in chapter 3 of Ephesians, and I want to speak about God's plan A. And I want to read to you, first of all, these first 13 verses. As I say, it's a reasonably dense bit of scripture, but magnificent what's in there. And I think it just, as you read it, you just know, I don't know how new you are to the faith. Many of you probably aren't. Some of you might be, or not even yet sure that you're you're a Christian, so very warm welcome if that's you. But you may not know that the Bible is, 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 is a very real dynamic book. So the, this, for example, was a letter written by a guy called Paul, the Apostle Paul. Once upon a time, he sat down in prison, which is where he was, and dictated this letter. This is not like the works of Shakespeare or Jane Austen or something. Work through, thought reflectively through, you know. Or even when I do stuff like a blog or I do, I am writing, rewriting a little booklet. You know, you go over it carefully. This is dynamic. This guy is dictating this to a church. And you sort of get it as you read it. And in it, there's massive truth and revelation. So it starts like this. Look, look, look at the first few. We start at the chapter 3 at the beginning. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, dash, he suddenly seems to stop whatever he's going to say. That's the point. And he sort of goes off on one, but it's a glorious one. And it looks like as soon as he mentions the gospel of Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done, he just can't resist getting into that. And maybe he was going to say something about himself or what it was happening to him. Paul's not bothered about it in the end. Even though he's in prison, he can't resist talking, writing about Jesus. And, and that's such a great example right from the start. So then he goes on to say, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Jesus Christ. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. 
which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent, God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. He sort of gets back to, I think, what he was going to write about. Don't be discouraged about the fact I'm in prison and I'm suffering because it's all glorious because it's all about this. And I think just that in itself is a great example, just to rest in it. You know, what a man, so taken up with the gospel. So we've got to explore a little bit this morning why he gets so excited and why it should excite us. And we, I hope faith will come today, real faith for you personally and for what you are as a church and what you're here for with other believers in Bristol at this time in the 21st century, 2018. So we're going to ask the Holy Spirit's help. Now, so I'm aware that some of this will be familiar to many of you, but I'm going to make an apology through, not really, an excuse, perhaps excuse it, through a quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a famous old uh, theologian, who said, there are some things which can never be said too often. They are so significant in and of themselves. And what we're looking at this morning is exactly that, something that cannot be said too often because it is so significant in and of itself. And Paul acknowledges, he's repeating himself, I don't know if you noticed it, even in this passage in verse 3, he said, made known to me, thing I have already written briefly. So, so I, I know you know, I know I've said this before, I know I've been saying this, I've been writing this, but you're going to hear it again. So that's my base for this morning, and I trust by God's help it will not be at all, uh, if you like, boring or just repetitive, because it is such a magnificent, magnificent subject. We're going to be looking at Jesus and his church. That's what we're going to look at for the next 30 minutes together. It isn't just Jesus, it is Jesus and his church, and Paul can't stop talking about that linked theme in this passage and really throughout most of his writings. And in a way, I would say it is what I would argue has absorbed my life uh, in many ways. I'm not claiming in the same class as Paul, of course, but I would say originally I was a school teacher for 10 years and all the rest of it uh, many years ago, and I'm now, in a few days' time, I'm 67, and uh, you know, there's a lifetime there, and I think my life has been shaped, honestly, by seeing something about Jesus Christ and his church. So this really is, like Paul, something very dear in my heart. And I want, I hope, to convey something of why it is so important. It is comforting, what we're going to look at. It's reassuring. It's stirring. It's exhilarating. It's humbling. It's challenging. And it's actually very important to even understand the world. I'll be as overstating it as that, which isn't really overstating it, understanding what is, goes on in the world, what's, what's behind it all, what's going on. We're looking at God's plan and God's plan A for history. Now, let's, let's unpack a few of the terms. There's a, a word used four times in what I read to you, the word mystery. And we just need to get that because when we think of mystery, we think of something that's a riddle or a puzzle or like, oh, who, who understands that? That's not really what 
is meant in the New Testament by it. Not, not, not in the same way. It's not the, the real meaning of the word. So a brief explanation is important. A mystery is something that was secret and hidden, and nobody got it. It was a hidden truth. But something which God knew, and God was planning. And then there came a point when it became clear and obvious, and it's no longer that difficult to get, though it's amazing, it's now open. It's an open secret. So it's not like we're going to read this and think, oh yeah, well, it's a complete, what on earth is that all about? It's a mystery. No, no, no. It's a wonderful truth that was once secret. And what I want you to get, it's such a privilege to be alive now. In the broad sense, to be alive after Jesus. After Jesus had died and risen again and the Holy Spirit sent I am so grateful to God that I've been born in what we call the New Covenant Age, the post, that you know, in AD, post-Christ, after Jesus had come. Now, I would argue it's even more privileged to be alive today. I mean, it's an amazing time for all our grumbles, you know, the, the, the physical, uh, particularly in our part of the world, the physical realities of our world are very good in terms of health and much that we enjoy and and. and that would be true, although there are many poor people, that would be true by and large of the, the world we live in, that it's amazingly connected, the communications, all sorts of things are amazing. Behind that, I believe we are on a timeline with God. And I think there is something of the sovereignty of God in, in having whatever's going on in our world today, having a stage on which the church can proclaim Jesus. And worldwide, I'm talking about, all the followers of Jesus can proclaim some truth. And you know, some amazing things have happened in probably, roughly speaking, the last 100, 200 years, apart from all technological, technological things, amazing other things. You know, there are countries that once would have had no understanding of, of Jesus who've got massive churches, South Korea, South Korea, South America, Africa. There's an amazing thing gone on in the church over the last 100 years or so, probably. The, there is this incredible sweep of the spirit which we as christians understand the whole thing which pentecostals and charismatics and and there's actually for all the grumbles there's amazing unity out there amongst churches i would even say in my lifetime things have changed massively the size of church the feel of worship the number of young people and children it's all much much more in dear old secular britain and and there's a sort of interconnectedness. I mean, most of us would work, or you work, with quite a lot of other churches in Bristol. We all sort of get it, what the gospel is of, of a certain circle, not every single one. I understand that. But there's a lot of good stuff going on, and I don't think that's accidental. I think that's all part of an exciting uh, stage, I'll use the word again, on which the church can, can impact an increasingly confused and chaotic world with the good news about Jesus. Now that is the, 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 the mystery that is no longer a mystery that we enjoy and understand and we can tell other people about. And that's what we'll take a few minutes just to dig into. We're looking then at God's plan. It's, I'm not going to call it a mystery anymore because it's all clear. God is doing something in our world and it focuses on two things. One, God's great plan centers on Jesus Christ. So we're going to take a few moments to talk about that, and then we're going to pick up the second part, which you won't be surprised to hear, is God's great plan includes the church. But let's start with Jesus Christ, because that's the right way to start. He's got to come first, 
and then it builds out from there. If I can quote Martin Lloyd-Jones once more, he says this, the coming of Jesus Christ into the world is the most thrilling, the most exciting, the greatest, the most glorious thing that has ever happened in history. Again, I genuinely would not call that overstatement. It is the most glorious thing that's ever happened, the coming of Jesus to this world. No human being could have thought of God's plan for salvation. It really isn't something you compute with human values or mental... You know, that's why it was a mystery, that, there's, that God himself will become a man. He will be a God-man. And, 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 you know, it is a mysterious in another way, but it's true. So when Jesus, and we haven't got time to unpack it all, but Jesus in John 5, he declares that he, he, he brings himself out as being equal to the Father and uses the I am's and things. And the Pharisees and that get very angry, sort of justifiable. He says he's calling himself equal to God, as though he were God. And what they're trying to compute is he's talking as though he was God, equal to God, like a second God. All of that's blasphemous. But Jesus goes further. He said, no, no, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Whatever the Father does, I do. He's actually saying, I'm going to push it a bit further. I am the Father, in effect, amongst you as a man. And as you read that John 5, it's an extraordinary chapter. Because Jesus is saying, you know, I'm not just equal with God. This is God. (laughs) So when you see Jesus, you see God manifest in the flesh. You want to know what God's really like? Read Jesus. Read the Gospels. That's the heart of God. That, that, That is... He was the son, was the radiance of the Father's glory. He's the exact image of the Father. He, it, it's God manifest in the flesh. Now, yes, that's mysterious still, but that's glorious. And that's the key to what God was going to do. He was going to come himself. His son was going to bear our sin in his body on the cross. We've just been singing about it and worshipping and taking the bread and wine. And nobody could have worked that out. That is something that's revealed. Oh, my word. God himself is our saviour, as somebody prayed. God the saviour. We couldn't save ourselves. It was impossible. He came. He lived an ordinary life. He lived a very ordinary life. It's strange. It's very, uh, you know, a, a carpenter. It's not even the bottom of the pile. It's sort of lowish in the pile. You know, and, it, and it's a sort of odd place, Nazareth. You know, it's a bit of a backwater. And it's just incredible. God, it's all about a humble God. It's all about... What he is and who he is. He doesn't come to a palace. He's not interested in the Caesars. He doesn't write a book. Uh, you know, he doesn't have a conquering army. He, he's dead by 33. And yet, clearly, he's extraordinary. And the impact is extraordinary. It, that is a sort of mystery, but it's sort of obvious if you believe it. <laughs> you can see, I mean, it's nothing, once you believe it, it's just like, oh, my word. That's Jesus and the gospel. He died not for his sin. He had none died for your sin and my sin. He bore our sins on, in his body on the cross. That was how God was going to get us free. That's how he was going to save us from our own uh, foolishness and rebellion and condemnation. The plan was that, and it's there hidden in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, it's even sort of hidden in the Passover lamb. It's, it's amazing when you get into it. It's sort of hidden, but It's only when Jesus comes, you say, oh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't the gospel great? I know some of you will know what I'm saying, and I hope you're enjoying it. If it's a little new to you, just go with the flow, because I think God can open your eyes. This is not something you particularly grasp 
primarily through human logic. It's not illogical, but it's like, because it's so amazing and it's God's mystery, you need revelation. Oh, I see it now. And then you can do lots of thinking around that. You don't throw your brain away, but you do need to see it. I just pray, Lord, as I speak on this amazing subject, which I love, Lord, and clearly many around me will be filled with the same love, I pray, Lord, that you just open the eyes of any dear friends who, who haven't yet seen your glorious plan worked out through Jesus. Lord, do it by your Spirit, in your love and grace. Amen. So we're, as Christians, our, how does it work? Our core job is what Paul summarizes in verse 8. He says, what I do is I preach to the Gentiles, that's basically I preach to anybody, the boundless riches of Christ. So the first and foremost thing we do as a church that should absorb our thinking, and I trust it does, is Jesus Christ. And, and we talk about his boundless riches. Now, people sometimes criticize Christians, I would say what real Christians, it's not just us in this church, but people who really bang on about the gospel and Jesus, sort of alpha and all, you know, all sorts of decent church. They sometimes criticize, say, well, why don't you do more for social action? Why don't you do more for political change? Why don't you go on about the state of the world and Putin and Trump and whatever? Well, I, I'm not against all that stuff, but to be honest, I'm never going to answer anything unless I start with Jesus. I don't just stay in a holy huddle. I believe the gospel will change lives, ultimately changes and impacts and changes communities and cultures and nations. And I think there's evidence in history of that happening repeatedly, including our own country. So, if you know, I want to see Britain get better and Bristol get better. I want the gospel to spread, first of all. That's first and foremost. So we start with the boundless riches of Christ. That doesn't mean that that's only a little holy thing about what you do on Sunday morning. In the end, it affects you 24-7. It affects your whole life. It affects how you behave, how you speak, how you think, how you act. But it has to start with Jesus Christ, doesn't it? The inside out. So Paul says the boundless riches of Christ are what I really get excited about. It's not the job of us Christians to force some sort of Christian morality on people who don't believe anything. That's not really our prime job. It's not to try and keep them in order and impose on them ways of living that will be better for them in a rather patronizing way sometimes. No, no. We need to tell them about Jesus first and foremost. We will be addressing things that are wrong in their lives and our lives, but we were no better we will be saying, you know, that isn't good, God, but there's an answer. <laughs> but it's through talking about Jesus, the boundless riches of Christ. We're not here to preach religion. We're not here to tell people how to pray, what sort of formula to conform to, what sort of tradition would work best for them. If we want to put laws on people, if you want a law, there are better religions to do that. Indeed, the Judaism does a very good job on a, on, a, on a law for you. Probably the Muslims aren't bad of telling you how to live, but that won't save you and that won't meet your heart's need. The gospel isn't about law. It's not about religion. It's about meeting Jesus, finding him, seeing who he is, and everything changes from the inside out. The Spirit of God comes on you. You're born again of the Holy Spirit. God and you are reconciled. You become a child of God. And you begin to live differently out from that. That is marvelous. 
I've seen it work multiple times in my life. People radically changed by the gospel. It's worked for me. All through the ups and downs of life. Now, actually, that's what I want to preach, the boundless riches of Christ. That's what we're here to do and to tell people the very, very good news. The Christian message is good news. It is not good advice. That's not original. Tim Keller, I read that with, but I thought it was really good. We have not got a lot of good advice for people. We've got good news. There is a world of difference between good advice and good news. I won't over-explore it. You can work it out for yourself. Good advice is good advice. And it's telling you how to behave. and what. But it can be a bit irritating or it can be a little bit condemning or it can be like, oh, yeah, I'm really stupid. I didn't do that. Never thought of that. Good news is what it is. Good news. Do you know you're free? Do you know you've got £50,000 given to you? Do you know your kids haven't uh, have done well at school? Do you know you haven't got cancer? I mean, you know what good news is like. Good news is, oh, wow. The gospel is good news. It's not good advice, it's good news. Jesus has come and died for you and risen again. You can be completely forgiven. Your sins removed as far as the east is from the west, blotted out. You have a fresh start. You've got eternal life. God your Father, you have got everything by the grace of God. It's announced to you as news that you believe. It's not good advice, it's good news. And Paul said, (laughs) I love preaching it. That's why he gets into this. I love telling people. I trust you do too. I'm sure you do. So that's Jesus himself. But God's great plan, this is his second main point, includes the church as well. And that's important. Verse 6 says this. This mystery is that through the gospel, which I've just been talking about, the good news about Jesus, gospel means good news, The Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Now, that is a magnificent verse. In another setting, I could spend an hour unpacking that. I'm not boasting, like, I could spend an hour. I'm telling you, I'd love to spend an hour. (laughs) But, But we can't. But that is a brilliant summary of the glory of what's happened. Through the gospel, it's not just you personally get saved. God is creating a new people a new community, a new nation, actually, from all the nations, and they're God's people, they're God's nation. And they are from Jews and Gentiles. It's not about your race, it's about Jesus. And if you're in Christ, you're in this. And together, you form one body, and together, you share in the promise in Christ Jesus, which is really saying, together, you come into everything God's got for you in Christ Jesus. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. So to be a Christian is not merely to have a personal faith in Jesus. That is magnificent. But it also is you come into a whole body, a community of other followers in Christ. And that's very important to understand. And it probably needs a few minutes because we need to get our heads around what does that mean for us. The church of Jesus Christ is something that God loves. Now, not all of us would first of all say, I love the church. So let's get lined up with God. God loves the church. It comes through, he does. 
He loves, I mean, in fact, the picture in the Bible is that the church is the bride of Christ. He loves this bride. He loves the ones he's died for. He loves the ones who are his people who are gathered to him. He loves every one of them. So we've got to try and line our lives up with his view, which is really important. And Paul is also excited here. Paul is not naive. We'll talk about that in a moment. The church isn't perfect. But the church is important to God. And hear this, the church is key to God's plans in history. Key. So yes, Jesus, of course, fundamental. But Jesus' people, the church, Jesus went back to heaven and it's his followers, the church, who are now doing the stuff worldwide who are bringing the kingdom, bringing the gospel, living the gospel, bringing hope, bringing light to this world. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, but then he said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. And so the church is a vital part of God's plan. And you get these extraordinary verses. They'll go up in this passage, verses 10 and 11. Look at this. It was God's intent that now, 2018, in Bristol, in Britain, You can say that now through the church, not just in heaven or something, now the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities of the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So somehow God has planned that prior to the end time and the new heavens and new earth, not then, now, after Jesus has come, risen, but before he comes back, now... The church is key for people knowing the manifold wisdom of God. And not only people, I think, probably, demons and angels. So the church is central to God's plan. What does it mean, his manifold wisdom? Well, I'm not going to be able to tell you, because probably I don't know fully, let's be honest. And it may be a time factor as well. But you can use a bit of common sense. Manifold means multicoloured or richly, uh, rich variety. So it, it seems like there's a, a, a thing that there's a, a, a it's like think of a, a, a lavishly made tapestry or something where there's all sorts of different colours and weaves in it and, and that's God's wisdom and that, that wisdom of God will somehow be made very clear through the church. The church of Jesus Christ, of which we're only a little part, a few threads, but we are part, will display something by its multicolored, multifaceted, beautiful complexity, demonstrating love and compassion and grace and forgiveness and, and, and failure and restoration. You know, the church is going to show something about God to the world and to the spiritual forces. And that's God's plan. That's not like, oh, that's a nice thing way of looking at it. No, God's plan is that in this era we live in, through the church, he's getting all his wisdom out there to the world. That's quite a responsibility. And it's quite a privilege, isn't it? Little old you struggling through the snow, not sure whether you were wise to come. Well, here, let me tell you, if you just get this this morning, you are very, very special to God if you're a part of his church. If you belong to Jesus, of course you belong to him, you're a child of God, that was what we said. But there's a, something, another dimension here, being part of his church, you are a key part of God's plan for how he reaches this world with his grace and his glory and his love. 
So to subdivide very quickly, the church, there's three sub-points and then I'll be finished. The church is central to history. Look at John Stott, who, who, who was another older man. He, he's not been dead that long. Both of them, are Martin Lloyd Jones and he, were contemporaries, actually. This is, Mar- this is John Stott. History is the theatre. The world is the stage. The church members in every land are the actors. God himself has written the play. He directs and produces it. Act by act, scene by scene, the story continues to unfold. When you read this book, the Bible... And you read the book of Acts, coming just after the Gospels. You, if you use this analogy or metaphor of a play, you're reading the first couple of Acts of scene one of church history. When you read those Acts 1 to 28, you're covering 30 years of church history, roughly. And that's the opening scene. That doesn't, the curtain doesn't come down, that's it over at the end of Acts. That's setting it off. Now, I don't know where we are, Acts 6... Scene three, but you're on the stage today. They were on the stage then, you're on the stage today. Same drama is still going on. Amen? Reaching the world. Now, I think, obviously, the wisdom of God, one bit's in the Bible, that's Acts. Why is that in the Bible, Revelation? I think it sets the tone for the rest of the play. Basically, it's the same story, so it'll have the same, many similar storylines worked out in different cultures and different generations, amazing miracles, gospel preached, setbacks, conflict, breakthroughs. You know, everything you read there, still going on. Amen? That's it. Same strategy, roughly. And they, in that 30 years, managed to go from 120 in the upper room, which is where you are in Acts 2, to churches planted all round what we would call the Eastern Mediterranean, round from Rome right round through what we, the, you know, Israel, obviously, what's now Turkey, round through to North Africa, Church, all in 30 years. Some of those churches were big by then, thousands of people, thousands, Ephesus and Corinth probably, and others, Rome. Well, I think God's saying, every act, every 30 years, I expect that sort of impact. Fair enough, why not? Every 30 years, every generation, 120 people filled with the Spirit can produce that. <laughs> So surely not that special. Well, I think the point often is made here, they weren't that special. Oh, you say, yeah, but we have problems. We're grumpy and weird. They were grumpy and weird. <laughs> have you read the book to Corinth? See what Corinthians are like? They're wacky and sinful. Paul, you know, oh, he's perfect. Well, he wasn't perfect. I, I mean, you find him having an argument with Barnabas. They had a blood bust up. And they both went their own way. And then you've got him confronting Peter. I don't know who was right there. Probably Paul. But actually, they had quite a set to beginning of Galatians. I mean, the ordinariness of it is remarkable. It's a great God, not great people. It's the, and we've got the same Holy Spirit, the same gospel. Who knows what you can do in 30 years here in the southwest of England and Bristol? And you're bigger than 120. You know, and, and you're not the only ones at the game. They're all around us. Praise God, there's good, healthy churches all around. I mean, come on, this is the same drama. And God's working it out in each generation, in each part of the world. It's a brilliant strategy for reaching the whole world. So that in one day, in that glorious final day, there will be people from every tribe and nation and tongue in heaven. And I don't think God's trying to keep people out of heaven. He's trying to get them in. Just read the parables. Read the one about the banquet 
made. The, the banqueting, the, 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 the wealthy Lord, this is a parable, it's a story by Jesus, and he, and he invites people to this banquet, and they, they, the ones he first invites say, we don't want to go, we don't go, make excuse. So then he invites a wider circle, and he still, it says, your room's not full yet, so he goes out into the highways and byways and compels people to come in virtually. The heart of it is, I want my house full. Okay? Don't let Satan or stupid human logic say, well, God's a grumpy old God trying to... Th- how, how, how tough can I make it? Could I set the bar higher and just have a purified 10 in heaven? That is not God's heart. The gospel is the opposite. It's you all may come. Whosoever will may come. The door is open. The invitation goes out in the highways and byways. I want my house full. And so we are in an age of grace, an age of mercy... An age of patience. Goodness me, must be patient. You know, because, because there's some rubbish goes on. But God is looking for men and women to fill his house by coming to know Jesus. It's going to be a big feast when we get to heaven. You'll be cured of your agoraphobia, thank God, because you're going to have to get used to being surrounded by multiple millions rejoicing. And you will be. We'll all be cured of all our funny ways. That's not any more funny than loads of things I do. But, you, but we're all going to be there rejoicing together. It's going to be great. And God's heart is more and more. This new community. But this is worth saying. History, I believe, is fundamentally geared to this plan we're talking about. I don't know that I can fully satisfy you how much I can explain the full reality of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I believe both. Men and women and us are totally responsible, make real choices. But I believe God is bigger than everything. And his overall knows the end from the beginning, is timeless, the great I am, and all the rest of it. So I think in the mystery of God, he holds all that. But I do believe that the key players in history are his people. It's not means other people aren't important, but the whole thing is geared around his church. Now you might think, that's weird because you're quite a minority. Yes, I know, always have been. We're in the first century. But actually, I think God works things out with a view to his timescale and his plan. So the church is the center of his attention. So I think a nation like ours The future of our nation doesn't really hang on whether we get Brexit right or wrong, and that's a nightmare, isn't it? It doesn't hang on a lot of things. It hangs on what's the church going to do. Are we going to be what God's called us to be? Are we going to pray? Are we going to love people? Are we going to hear what he's saying to us in our generation? Are we going to do it? That's the key factor. The key player is the church, if you like. And it is true. Uh, Someone used the analogy, the church is like the thermostat so you know if the church is set warm ultimately the whole culture will warm up ultimately it'll all be changed you know so as we are full of the holy spirit as we warm up as we get it as we live it ultimately it affects the whole house Amen? amen i believe that i've lived my life believing that and i still believe it and I do think we need to get clear that the church, the covenant community, is the center of Father's attention. The church is central to the gospel. The church is central to the gospel. Some people 
so emphasize the personal that you would think Christianity is all about just a personal decision. Well, a personal decision is very crucial. Uh, And all about a personal relationship with Jesus. Well, that's obviously very important. But the full gospel is more than that. When you become a Christian, you don't actually have a choice about this. You become part of one new people. The gospel brings you into the family of God, the church. And actually, Jesus died for that to happen. That is part of his plan. Now, you know, naturally, you know, if you're born into a family, you don't have much choice about it. You're born and you're in that family, if we think of a normal family structure. Well, that's how it is as a Christian. Now, you may behave as a dysfunctional member of the church. You may not like that, but that may make your life less less comfortable. And it will certainly mean the church suffers a loss, the loss of your your gift and your presence. But the reality is, even if you never meet with other Christians, you're part of the church. Because you have to be. Because you're a child of God. You're born of the Spirit. And that means you've got brothers and sisters who are also born in the Spirit, and they are your brothers and sisters. Sorry. No choice. I don't like some of them. No, fine. They know my son might not like you. You're just part of a church, the church. So it is quite sensible. Indeed, it only works properly when you recognize that and try and find the bit that you should work in. It may be this bit, may not be. But there's a bit of the family where God will want you fitted in to work out your bit of the great plan. And until you find that relational link, and it is relational, it's not casual, like turning up at the cinema, it's a relational link, you will lack something. You'll be a Christian, I'm not saying about your salvation, but you will lack something of your effectiveness and your ability to be part of this plan properly. So I am a great believer, indeed I believe it's biblical, that being a Christian means you need to become involved in some local expression of church. It may be this one, or it may be another one. The gospel is good news about a good new community and a new family which you belong to. And actually, it can be really good. People caring for you, helping you, strengthening you, challenging you, yes. I don't think God can even properly sanctify you without other Christians. You won't get sanctified sitting on a pole in the mountains, on your own, up a pole, think, that's going to make me really holy. No, it might make you very uncomfortable, I would think, and a bit odd. But it won't make you holy. Living in a cave won't make you holy. What makes you holy is having other people around you who sometimes irritate and frustrate you. Oh, how? oh yeah, well, that's what makes you holy. We need some sandpaper to rub, rub the rough bits off you. You don't just sit contemplating in a cave. You get, might get something that way, but you're not going to get full-rounded sanctification. Amen? Amen. It's important. Actually, it's my next point, which is my final point. The church is central to Christian living. That's what I'm saying. You see, some of us would grudgingly concede it's useful, but we grumble about the church. And I know why. Listen again, one last quote from John Stott. Every church, listen to this, every church in every place at every time is in need of reform and renewal. That is John Stott, great man of God. Just listen again. Because it's true. Every church, in every place, at every time, is in need of reform and renewal. It's not finished. It's a work in progress. This church is, and every church is. And let me let you into a secret. It's made up of people just like you. Are you perfect yet? Are you absolutely loving, patient, forgiving, totally free of all your baggage, don't carry any chips on your shoulder, 
Well, praise God. Are you, I mean, I'm not being over-sarcastic, or slightly, I suppose, to be honest. But I know my own self. And unfortunately, you're sitting next to people who are also a work in progress like you are, who some days that chip is not, it shouldn't be there, but it is. Or that, you know, they're not handling well something in their life. And you, you know, like you don't. And so we have to understand this is the church. Still being renewed, still being reformed, still being sanctified, but loved by Jesus and God's plan for blessing the world. <laughs> well, what a weird, well, look, remember how Jesus was born in a stable? They all thought, well, he's a layman. How can he, well, he's a carpenter. Well, that's the same. You think the church, it's not impressive. No, I know. It's that sort of weird way God works. Look at you lot. You're not impressive. Am I impressive? Not really. But, you know, that's how it works. That doesn't mean we can't have some impressive people. It's nice to have a few. But, but to be honest, that's not what we're looking for. Oh, we've got three millionaires and a brain surgeon saved. We must be our good church. No, no. Sorry, I've gone off on one. That's nothing to do with anything, really. So uh, what I really want to say is it's about ordinary, broken people being used by Jesus. And I hope you get that. Now, we don't, aren't satisfied with low standards. Let's finish by being clear about this. I'm not satisfied, nor is Jesus, if the church has got ice-cold relationships, you know, it, 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 it's bitter rivalries, sort of ghetto mentality, bad relationships one to another, miserable faces and all the rest of it. Those things, he's like, oh, that's it, we just put up with it. No, no, Jesus doesn't like that, nor do I or you, I hope. And so we're always looking, God, help us to be what we are. We want to shine brightly. We want to be salt. We want to be light. We want to be more like you. We are a work in progress. We're not complacent, but we realize we're also not yet finished. We're not perfect, and we weren't chosen for our perfection. We were sinners, and we're saved by grace, and every one of us is that, and that's what the church is made up of, (laughs) and as I've already referred, you don't have to read the New Testament that carefully to see they were not perfect. Many of the letters, not actually probably this one, Ephesians, many of the letters are only written because there were problems in some of the churches. You can find that out on several, Galatians, Corinthians, a few others. So, so actually, they weren't perfect either. But they are showing us that it can be done in every age and it will be done in our age. Amen? I, th- I doubt if you're as bad as Corinth. don't think you are, really. Best I know of you. But... Yeah, come on. God can use the Christians in Corinth. He can use you in Bristol. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. All of us, one in Christ, following him with faith in him. So let's keep before us, as we finish, this vision that God is building his church. Jesus is building his church, and he is committed to the church being the agent for reaching the world with the glorious good news of the gospel. It is God's plan A, and he's not backing into a plan B. He's going to keep doing it that way. So we should never give up seeing ourselves change from one degree of glory to another, worshipping him in an authentic and real and spirit-filled way, building real relationships, recovering from the battles and difficulties and, blo- uh, and, and troubles we have on the way, moving forward, reaching out with compassion to the people around us, showing them the love of God. We are the arms of Jesus. We're the body of Christ. How else are they going to know? And, and all of that is part of what we're doing, what, what you're doing here in Bristol. Don't rubbish the church. Don't withdraw from it. Don't back off from it. Press in and be part of God's great plan A for reaching 
this part of the world and I would suspect a wider part of the world even like most local churches do. So I want you to stand together as we finish. And I want you to pray um, in little mini groups, perhaps two, three, four. Pray for this church, City Church. Pray, God, may we be, may we demonstrate your manifold wisdom and, you, you know, don't need to use those words. Display to the people around your heart, your love, your good news. Help us to be more and more missional, more and more effective in displaying, being what you called us to be. Use your own words. You're well able to do it. If you are a visitor and you don't feel comfortable praying together, please just acknowledge that and maybe just chat to them and say, hello, where do you come from? Be real. You know, don't say, I insist on praying about the manifold wisdom of God. No, if they're a visitor... Just talk to them. But bless you, you might be a visitor quite happy to pray. Over to you, Ben. You might want to finish. Let's get praying for a moment, and then I'll ask Ben to finish up. Let's just pray for this church at this time in this city.